Welcome to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Austin Reed, and I am the Senior Managing Editor at The Review. This podcast series will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews and conversations with figures around the world. Today, we are excited to bring you a conversation between Shivanshu Sharma, a second-year MPA fellow at the Cornell University Jeb E. Brooks School of Public Policy, and Prabhu Pingali, a professor in the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University with a joint appointment in the Division of Nutritional Sciences and Department of Global Development. Professor Pingali is also the founding director of the Tata Cornell Institute for Agriculture and Nutrition. Their conversation today will focus on food systems, challenges it is facing, and the way forward. We hope you enjoy. Welcome on the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. Before we discuss food systems, can you please talk about your background, your professional journey, and your work at Cornell? Sure. Good morning, Shivanshu. Great to be here on this podcast. I came to Cornell in 2013, nine years ago now. And I came in as the founding director of the Tata Cornell Institute, which was set up with an endowment from Mr. Ratan Tata to look at uh, how do you bring agriculture and food systems to address the chronic problems of malnutrition uh, with a focus on India, but looking beyond and looking at lessons learned from India for other countries in South Asia and and increasingly looking towards Sub-Saharan Africa region. And I'm also a professor in the Applied Economics department uh, in the Dyson School, uh, which is part of the College of Business. Before coming to Cornell, I was um, the deputy director for agriculture at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I was one of the earlier people to be at the start of the agriculture grant-making program of the foundation. So that was quite an experience to build up an agriculture portfolio. And I specifically focused on policy and data and economics side of that uh, grant-making portfolio. And prior to that, I was with the Director for Economics at FAO. And before that, I was with the CGIR Center for many years with, spent nine years at Erie in the Philippines and another six years with CIMET the International Wheat and Maize Center in Mexico. But I started at the World Bank right after my PhD and spent five years working on African agriculture, looking at agriculture mechanization and farming systems in Africa. Um, I'm from India, obviously, (laughs) and studied in India, did my master's at the Birla Institute of Technology and Science and came to the U.S. in 1977 to do a PhD at North Carolina State University. So that's a nutshell of 
my life. Yeah, it's been a long journey, I guess. Thank you for this brief introduction, Professor Pingali. Your work has been an inspiration to many of us. Now diving right into the topic of the day, let us start by talking about the food system transformation. Can you put this topic into historic perspective by detailing out the food system transformation over the decades? Food systems is very much in the news these days. Everyone's talking about food systems and food systems transformations and what people think is the best food system for whatever purpose they want. So climate change people think about food systems relative to carbon emissions and reducing carbon emissions and increasing carbon stocks, etc. The nutritionists look at food systems in terms of how do you increase the overall diversity of food? And the environmentalists look at it from their perspective. Everyone has a perspective of food systems. But I think in this discussion, people seem to forget that food systems are driven by the incentives and the needs of farmers, uh, agriculture producers, value chain actors, and consumers. So it's you and I can't say this is what food system should look like. Food systems are a response to price incentives, policy incentives, infrastructure, markets, etc. And that's driven by individuals and companies uh, across the world. That's, I think, a basic fundamental difference between the way I think of food systems and the way it's projected in the popular narrative and in debates around the world today. So in that context, food systems have been transforming for a long time. It's not that there's suddenly a change in food systems. We've seen food systems in the 1960s go from traditional village and remote or subsistence-oriented food systems to becoming food systems that focused on producing rice and wheat with surplus generated for urban markets. That's what the Green Revolution did. So the Green Revolution actually brought in a tremendous increase in food supplies, but it also created a very narrow, very homogenized food system that focused on staple grains. So that was the very first transformation that we've seen. Since then, we've seen periodic transformations happening in food systems as incomes have grown, as urbanization has happened, as globalization has happened. We've seen food systems go from that narrow staple grain base to becoming more diversified, becoming much more globally integrated. And when you think about food consumption, food you consume doesn't necessarily get produced where you're living or even within your country, it comes from all around. So, so we are now living in a food system which is extremely global, extremely diverse and significantly cheaper than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Etc. So that's the big change. But the demands on the food systems have also increased. You want better quality, you want better safety. At the same time, you want to 
the system to be environmentally sustainable, has to be climate friendly, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're, we're putting a lot of demands on the system, but we're not providing the players in the system, the farmers, the value chain actors, et cetera, the necessary incentives or the necessary tools to be able to meet those demands. So you talked about different players and specifically farmers, and I will come back to that point. But uh, before that, I just want to ask a quick question that uh, there is a huge debate on new scientific inputs and practices versus preservation of traditional seeds and practices. Why are these posed as antithetical? What are your views on it? So they shouldn't be antithetical. They should be seen as complementary. I think science and the role of science in agriculture and food systems is not new, it's historic. It's for the past couple of centuries, science has been a part of food systems. It, the problem is not science. The problem is not modern inputs. The problem is the way in which inputs are used in production system. If you're not more judicious in your use of inputs, if you're not smarter in the way you use technology and modern inputs, then you create environmental externalities, environmental problems. But the smarter you are, the more efficient you are, you see less of the environmental damage happening. And I think the focus ought to be on how do you create smarter farming and not whether it's science and technology-based versus traditional-based. Because you can do traditional farming, but you may not be able to meet the global demand. You could do traditional farming for small areas. You could have niche crops that are grown with very little inputs, etc. But if you're thinking about productivity improvement that matches population growth and overall demand growth, then one needs to say, where is that going to come from? So I think that's the issue that needs to be addressed. So as per FAO estimates, women produce more than 50% of the food grown worldwide, but there is still a huge disparity in access to resources to women. Uh, Green revolution technologies and, and extension services were miserably targeted towards men. Now there are different organizations working on women economic empowerment. For example, government programs like National Rural Livelihood Mission back home in India focuses on social and economic empowerment of rural poor women. What role do you see women playing in addressing the issues which food system is facing? If you think about food production, food processing, and connecting into the value chain, a majority of that happens through women. And the work that's going on on empowerment of women is an important work. It's really uh, crucial. Our own research at the Data Cornell Institute shows that when women are empowered, then not only do you see improvements in productivity at the farm level, but you also see improved nutritional status of the household especially improved nutritional status of children. So empowerment is a really important part of the story. 
What worries me is that the way empowerment is being seen is through uh, small NGO-led projects. Now, these are important, but how do you scale this up? How do you create empowerment for, you know, half a billion women in India? You know, small projects are not going to get you there. You need large-scale policy reform. You need large-scale investments in education, rural literacy. You need large-scale investments in public health infrastructure, family planning infrastructure, etc. I think that's the message that needs to get out there. Empowerment of women needs to happen, but it needs to happen at scale. And say, what are the tools we have in order for it to happen at scale? Even as very important work is being done at the grassroots level to empower community groups, women's self-help groups, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think we are seeing enough of a discussion on bringing a policy and infrastructural uh, investment interface with this grassroots movements. These NGOs or small scale projects can help us in establishing island of successes. But if we want to scale this up, government needs to intervene because they are the one who can reach out to masses. They are the one who are the second biggest stakeholder after community. So yeah, I agree uh, on that. Again, coming back to different stakeholders. So we talked about community. What role do you see donor agencies playing in addressing the global food challenges? Because World Bank or BMGF is investing hugely on nutrition agriculture side. But what role do you see them playing in next 30, 40 years to address the issues which global food system is facing? This is a, a really important topic. You need a whole podcast for just this topic. And so donors, donor agencies, the, the World Bank, USAID, the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, these players had an enormous impact at the start of the Green Revolution. The amount of investment that they made on agriculture research, R&D, technology development that resulted in the Green Revolution varieties for rice, wheat, and maize had a transformative impact on the world. But if you look at where we are today, we are in a situation where a large part of the research and technology generation and dissemination of technologies is being done by national programs. It's being done by the Indian agriculture research system, the China agriculture system, the Brazilian system, the Mexican system, etc. They are the big players. And what the donor community needs to do is figure out how to be a complement to that investments which are being done by national programs and have national programs lead the process of moving forward and not try to substitute for the work of national programs and not try to preempt some of the investments that the national programs are making in this area. And I think that's a really important distinction between 
donor investments that took place in the 50s and 60s to donor investments that are needed looking ahead. I think that's important. But the second thing that I think I'd like to say about this is, you know, large donors focusing on international public good investments can have enormous impact. International public good investments in plant sciences, in agronomy, et cetera, can then help national programs take those investments and adapt them to their own countries. Um, if, if donors are much more downstream and don't address that international public good investments, then we are losing a big opportunity for having impact. And so that's my uh, suggestion to the donor community. Focus on public good investment, focus on international public good investment and strengthen national programs because in the end, the national programs are the ones that are going to do the job. So we talked about national programs and we both have our roots in India. My last two questions I wanted to talk, focusing on India. The first one is recent surveys indicated that obesity in India is rising. Uh, what do you think is the reason and what policy measures you would suggest that reconcile the paradoxical situation that obesity is rising and so is the food insecurity? Yeah, that's a really important question. The research my group has done has tracked obesity trends across India and tried to look at some of the reasons why you're seeing this rise in obesity happening in India. It's a major public health challenge today. You know, Indian uh, policy community is still very focused on undernutrition, which continues to be important, as you said. But overnutrition, overweight, obesity problems are rising. And with that, there's the rise in non-communicable diseases also happening. Why is that happening? I think there's several reasons for it. One of the reasons for it is that as you go from intense high labor input, high energy input, agriculture, occupations to becoming more urbanized and using less of your labor, but in occupations that required more thought and not having to expend as much physical effort, then the energy balance changes. The amount you're taking in in terms of food and the amount you expend in terms of labor goes into an imbalance and that creates some of the obesity issues you're seeing. But the other important factor is that the food system itself is imbalanced. The food system is much more calorie dense than nutrient dense. And the calories coming from staple grains, from fats, oils, etc. And these are cheaper. They become cheaper because of all the technology innovations and agriculture investments that went in. And in addition to that, you have this rapid spread of processed food supply and processed food consumption happening across India. And it's happening across all income levels. 
and it's happening both in urban areas and in rural areas. So bringing all these together, you begin to see this problem of obesity happening at the same time as you continue to see food insecurity because the lack of access to food is still a problem for a large segment of the population, even as increased access and increased calorie consumption and overnutrition is becoming a problem. So you see both of these problems in India today. How do you address them together? Well, one of the ways you address them together is to look at widening the food basket and making access to more nutritious food, pulses, coarse cereals, vegetables, fruit, livestock products, etc., cheaper, more accessible, and build the supply chains around these commodities. I think much of the focus has been on building the supply chains for stable grains. And the entire agriculture investments was focused on stable grains. Now it's time to open that up, build the investments for increasing the productivity of these broader set of food groups, build investments for market infrastructure, value chain infrastructure, etc. And then finally, we shouldn't underestimate the importance of uh, behavior change, behavior change among consumers about what's good quality food, what's the right proportions, etc. And that can come through education campaigns, advertising campaigns, etc. So there has to be commitment at all these levels, at the production level in terms of expanding the food basket at the consumer levels in terms of more responsible consumption practices, et cetera. Governments have to step up. I don't think the governments, the Indian government takes the obesity issue as seriously as it does under nutrition issue. It's time to take both of them seriously. So you talked about that we focused on three major crops, cereal crops, and now it's time to shift the focus. How can governments do this? Because we all know that in political economy, if you provide some subsidies, it is tough to take those subsidies back. So do you suggest that we should provide more subsidies for these nutritious crops? Like what are your suggestions? I think providing more subsidies will just result in magnifying the problem that we already have with the enormous amount of subsidies that are being provided and the share of the budget that goes to the subsidies is so high. And, and if you expand it, then that share will increase, which means you're not able to make the investments in infrastructure, in roads, in transport systems, in agriculture research systems, et cetera, that are needed crucially. So subsidies don't come for free. They come at the cost of other investments that governments need to make. And so that's going to be the challenge. I think we do need to address this problem of subsidies for farmers that produce rice and wheat. It's a longer term political economy issue that needs to be addressed. But the way I would look at improving the food basket 
is not to think about it as subsidies, but to think about it as improving overall access to markets, improving market infrastructure, improving access to seeds and technologies for these wider set of crops, improving ways in which one can influence consumer behavior for improving the demand for this wider set of uh, crops and commodities, promoting private sector investments in the value chain for these crops. Because fruits, vegetables, government doesn't do much on that. It's the private sector. And allowing the private sector to function in a way that they can build these value chains is important. Not putting restrictions on the private sector, but opening it up. That's important. And when I say private sector, I'm not talking about multinationals. I'm talking about domestic companies. I'm talking about small domestic traders, et cetera. Having that opportunity for building up that supply chain is absolutely crucial. And I think those are the various holistic steps we should be thinking about. And not to say the government needs to come and put subsidies on all these other crops or minimum support prices on all these other crops for them to be produced. It's the other way. Let the market function. So before coming to Cornell, I have worked with rural poor farmers in different states in India. And my last question is related to their future. So there has been a debate. Is there a future for smallholder farmers or should we shift to large uh, farmers, like big farmers? What do you think is the future of Indian agriculture and future of smallholder farmers? Which are the potential areas where agriculture investment will be strengthened for achieving food security? And can you spell out some policy recommendations for policymakers back home? So I think should small farmers be there or not is a non-starter for a debate. You will have small farm agriculture in India through my lifetime, definitely, and your lifetime also. I don't think that's going to go away. And look at other countries. Look at countries like Japan, Korea, and China, etc. Now, these countries still have small farm agriculture systems, even as they develop. Even as Japan has become a modern, industrialized, developed country, agriculture is still done by small farms. So it's not a question of should they be small farms or large farms. It's a question of how can small farms profitably participate in the food and agriculture system? Right? That's basically the story. How can they continue to have adequate livelihood? How can they participate in the market? How can they improve their incomes, etc.? And if you think in that context, there are various models. And one of the, the models that appeals to me is to look at how do you create aggregation of small farms not by putting their land together, but by creating producer groups, farmer producer groups. Uh, in the past, they were cooperatives, but the cooperatives were seen much more as a way in which everybody was 
treated equal and all output was common output, etc. A farmer producer organization is different. A farmer producer organization is of one way to think about it is all farmers are shareholders in a company and their, their shares are equal to the land that they bring into the company, the land that they cultivate, the produce that they bring into the production to cultivate their own land, but they can aggregate the produce and create scale. So by creating scale, you're better able to negotiate for better prices, better contracts, your transactions costs and connecting to the market becomes lower. Your ability to meet safety standards, quality standards, et cetera, improve. So that's the way I would look at it. I would look at it as farmer producer companies that spread across the country. And each company may have you know, 50 farmers, 100 farmers or whatever. You're not creating large farms. You're creating opportunities for small farms to be part of groups that can create scale. And at the same time, within a farm household, there'll be several members who will be working outside the farm. And incomes from outside the farm will probably be higher than the entire farm income. But that's still possible while maintaining uh, small farm agriculture systems. And that's the way you see it happening in many of the developed countries today, in, in Asia, in East Asia, and increasingly in Southeast Asia also. So for example, in India, like Amul is one of the examples where farmers came together and formed the cooperative, but we have not seen many examples from India. So why do you think is that the case? And what are the learnings one can take from Amul, which can be implemented in these uh, crops? So actually on the Data Cornell Institute website, we have a site on farmer producer organizations and we actually map out and have data on farmer producer organizations in, in India today. And you'll be surprised to know that there are around 15,000 such producer organizations that are functioning very viably. And so Amul is one example where you did create that scale by having producers aggregate their milk output, right? So that's an important one. But you're seeing similar success stories in vegetable production in um, high-value agriculture products. Um, grapes is one area in Maharashtra where pretty much all of the grape production is going through these producer organizations. Pulses is another area where we're beginning to see this. Fruits is another area where this is happening. Poultry production is another one. So there's, there's several examples now coming up of farmer producer organizations responding to market signals. The important issue is government should let it happen. Government should not try to control the process. Government should not try to think that they know better than the market does. And, and if that can happen, if producer organizations can be formed more organically, 
but create the legal structure, the legal structure that allows each of the shareholders to have entitlement to their resources, entitlement to their outputs and incomes is important and the legal structure for contracts. So when private traders, et cetera, want to contract for certain produce, certain quality, et cetera, that the legal structures are there for farmers to benefit from those contracts and to be protected in those contracts. So I think that's the role government should play, but let the actual process of produce organizations, the management of these organizations, et cetera, happen privately by farmers themselves. So I, I know that in Bihar, maize farm producer company is functioning, um, supported by Jivika Bihar. But the example you talked about focused on fruits, vegetables, milk, grapes. So is perishability of product plays a role in uh, an FPO being successful? That's a really important question. Perishability is definitely an important factor, but I think overall quality plays a big role and the market price plays a big role. So if you're a rice producer, the incentive to be part of a producer group is limited because you can take your rice to a market and get the same price. But if you're a vegetable producer, then you have to meet certain quality standards, you have to meet certain safety standards, et cetera, to be part of a value chain. And there, being a small producer with half an acre or one or two acres doesn't give you the ability to meet all those transactions costs. But if you're part of a group of 50 farmers, then you can definitely have the scale to negotiate a better price, have the infrastructure to take the produce to the markets, go through the testing process, etc. So that's the important part. Of it. So I believe one thing our listeners can take away from this podcast is role of different stakeholders in addressing the issues of global food systems and future demand. Farmer community, the largest stakeholder has definitely an important role to play, specifically the smallholder farmers in adopting sustainable practices. Government, an important stakeholder after community, should play the role of a facilitator. Donor agencies can contribute by investing in research and development, and private players should bring in their expertise for creating better markets. Professor Pingali, I think this is the right stop for us. I want to thank you for taking the time out despite your busy schedule. And I'm very sure our listeners will be delighted to hear you talk about this very relevant topic. To know more about the work of Professor Pingali and his team, our listeners can go to the website of Tata Cornell Institute, www.tci.cornell.edu. Thank you so much, Professor Pingali, for doing this. Thanks, Shivanshu, and good luck to you.